Well, our culture, I believe, is in the middle of a love crisis. Now, what do I mean? Everyone in our culture firmly believes that love is important. It's foundational. It's key. In fact, it's the most important thing. And yet, we're all kind of struggling to define it. What's the slogan of our era? Love is love. Now, you and I know, it may look good in a T-shirt, but if you use the word as the definition, maybe you don't really know what it is. I overheard a conversation between two guys the other day where one of them asked, what's franking credits? And the other guy said, oh, you know, it, it's, it's credits that, are, that, that frank. <laughs> now, I think he doesn't know. I didn't really thought about what it is. Love is love. Maybe we don't know. We've never really thought about what it is. And so what we've done is kind of reserved it for a romance and affection and those experiences and feelings. Now, interesting, the Bible agrees with our culture, our culture agrees with the Bible, that love is the most important thing. First fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. The greatest commandment, love God, love others. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you can have all the spiritual gifts, but you don't have love, you're nothing but a gong, and that's not a compliment. When it comes to Romans 12, verse 9, it begins with love. Love must be sincere. But unlike our culture, the Bible's not afraid to define it, to show you what it is, what it looks like. Now, what we've just read for us in, in Romans 12, verse 9 to 21, may seem at first like a random collection of punchy sayings. Boom, boom, boom. But once you step back and you look at all these sayings, it creates a masterpiece called love. It does not... It's not afraid to define it. It doesn't, it doesn't reserve it for just those in a romantic relationship. But it paints a picture of love that is all-encompassing, that is breathtaking and confronting. So what we're going to do is quite quickly just go through each of these sayings and then we're going to step back. Let's start with the first one. Verse 9, love must be sincere. The Bible's not really interested in do you think you're a loving person, but rather, are you a loving person? Because it must be sincere, it must be noticed. Because anyone can say, oh, yeah, I'm loving, I'm a nice guy, I'm kind to those. But does your love involve what is to come? And what's very interesting is what is to come after a call to love is very much a call to hate. What's the next one? Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. To the parent who says to their kid, ah, oh, we mustn't hate, God disagrees. In order for you to have sincere, genuine love, it involves hate. Now, it's not hate evil people, but it is hate evil. Take, for example, you've got a niece who's online and gets badly trolled. Malicious things said against her, vile things said against her. Do you not hate that? We think, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. No, no, not yeah, yeah, of course. It is so easy not to hate evil. Because you notice what it is, cling to what is good, because it is easy to let go. Because we want to fit in, because everyone else is doing it. Uh, because we're sort of engaging evil ourselves. There's a guilt there. You might be, you know, for example, like you might hate or want to hate sex trafficking. 
and yet you're engaging in porn or visiting escort and you feel this guilt. And so you don't hate the evil. Genuine love hates evil. It clings to what is good knowing it is so easy to let go. Next one, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one, above, uh, one, honor one another above yourselves. Love is to be felt. It, it is a feeling. And it's not so much a feeling that you feel, but do other people feel it? What do other people experience by you? What's life like on the other side of you? And generally speaking, we're not a good judge of ourselves in this, right? It's like bad breath. You go, oh, that's all right. Someone else smells your bad breath and think, whoa, what died in there, right? We're generally not a good judge of ourselves. So it's important. And every now and then you've got to be brave enough to ask a question like, do you feel loved by me? Can I ask, what, what kind of friend am I to you? And you're brave enough to ask a question like that every now and then. You will be encouraged by the ways in which you are being a good friend. I love it. But also it is exposing Say, what's life like on the other side of me? I wonder if you're brave enough to ask a question like that. Verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Love is enthusiastic. This is this energetic uh, living for the Christian life. The opposite is spiritual apathy. And I think the Christians who are most in danger of this spiritual apathy, of losing this fervor, if those who, those who live out the Australian dream, Grow up, get married, buy a house, have kids, retire. As a pastor, I'm more worried about those, let's say, couples who just get pregnant, go about their life, rather than those who struggle to. Because there's something when things go well, something happens where it just falls into place, something that happens when you just sort of focus on what's in front of you, and it becomes the only focus where the spiritual fervor can die. The way to fan it into flame, the way to keep having this energetic Christian living is to what? To serve the Lord. There was a family in this church who for many years, this was their story, been Christians for a while, but they just lost this energetic living. Recently they've changed. And I asked them, what's changed? Because I noticed, and other people were noticing, and they said, to be honest, we started making decisions that involved others outside our family. We started serving more, inviting people over to our home, sharing our table. And those simple things I could see, and they definitely could feel, this energetic Christian living rebloom. Verse 13, love hospitable. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. How do you feel when someone cooks you a meal? Does an act of service for you, buys you a gift, sends you an encouraging message, invites you over to their place. Unless you're weird, you feel loved, right? Share that feeling with others. Share that feeling by sharing what you have, your time, talent, your food, and your money. Practice hospitality. Keep going at it. Next one. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, that word persecute, right, it literally means to pursue. And that's to pursue to do harm, whether that's uh, verbal abuse, social ostracism, that's violence, whatever it might be. But interestingly, the call here is to what? Bless those who persecute you. Shouldn't it be curse those who persecute you? To hate them? 
to wish them ill. No, 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 the blessed, to be kind, to forgive, to be generous, to pray for them. Now, we're going to expand on what that looks like a bit later on, but let me just highlight one thing. It's not clear whether each of these commands are happening inside the church or outside the church. Persecution, we think, expect to be outside the church. But friends, bad behavior can happen inside as well. Persecution is not just from those outside, but can come from within. Regardless whether you're being persecuted or not, verse 15 is for you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Sympathy. Love is sympathy. It's getting alongside people. So the person who's rejoicing, don't go negative Nancy on them. You know, in a sense, oh, well, it won't last long. I knew someone who was celebrating like you, but then this happened, right? No, no, smile, pop the bubbly, get excited, right? Rejoice when someone's rejoicing. If someone is mourning, don't be that person that says, well, look on the bright side of things, you know? We can always find some good here, at least you've got the dot, dot, dot. No. Cry, listen. Love enters into people's experience. It feels what they feel, not what you feel or want them to feel. It feels what they feel. As John Stott said, love identifies with them and sings with them and suffers with them. Next one, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Love that word, harmony. It's beautiful when it comes to music. And I detect there was a harmony in that first song, but I'm not sure. But I feel like there was. I asked Curtis uh, to clarify, because uh, I don't know much about harmonies. But when it comes to a harmony, you cannot have a solo when it comes to a harmony. Everyone needs to have their part for it to sound beautiful, working together. When it comes to living in harmony, there's no solos. We need to work together. And the big killer of living in harmony is pride and conceit, being a snob or being stuck up. Now, snobbery is prone to all of us, right? It's not just for those who live in Mossman who say, oh, hi, Pearl, how are you? Like, it's not, that's not snobbery, right? All of us are prone to snobbery, that there's people we think we're better than. It's, that might be people from a different denomination, Seventh-day Adventists, Pentecostals, Sydney Anglican. That might be people from a different culture, Lebanese, Chinese, indigenous. That might be people who, think, who vote differently from you, Labour, Liberal, Greens, One Nation. Right? There's people who we look down, and you can tell who we're snobbed against by our jokes, by who we talk to, and who we complain about. It kills harmony when you're a snob. It's interesting, Curtis also said, you know, it's interesting... The key to a good harmony is listening. Listening. And I think it's the key to good living in harmony. To spend the time to stop, not necessarily agree with everyone, but say, I'm going to spend time listening to you, hearing what you have to say, so that we can live in harmony. Now, you have to admit, as this picture is painted, with each stroke of the brush, uh, this picture builds of what love is, that love is sincere and affectionate. It is patient, it is generous, it is hospitable, sympathetic, humble, and it forms by bit this masterpiece called love. And if a church lived this out, 
you'd want to be part of this church, wouldn't you? And you know what I love? As going through each of these ones, I see this in you. With every verse, the people I'm looking at right now, I've seen you do this out, that this is not hypothetical, but you have been living this out for many years. That this picture is being painted before our very eyes. But then another color is added, and it changes things. So what does love look like when things go bad, and I mean really bad? Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. You'll notice as it goes along, there's a change from what to do to what you do not do. And love includes not doing things. That retaliation and revenge are absolutely forbidden for the follower of Jesus. No matter how hurt you've been, and some of you have been profoundly hurt and horribly treated by a boss, by a friend who you thought was your friend, by a spouse, by a sibling, by another member of church. Now, is this natural not to take revenge? No. Right now, kids' church is happening, and I can almost guarantee you, one kid is pushing the other kid, and what does the other kid do? Push them back, right? It begins. We don't have to teach them. It sort of begins, this natural revenge, right? Even the other day, right, the church doorbell is being pressed multiple times by the uh, boys who are walking past at the leave school. Ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, dong. You know what my natural reaction is? Let's get an electric buzzer in that doorbell. Teach them a lesson, right? That's this natural when we want to get revenge, right? Small or big. We want them to know the hurt that they've caused us, so we retaliate. Now, let me be clear. Not repaying evil for it, not retaliating, is not downplaying the hurt that's been done. You'll notice it's called evil. And it is always evil and it is always wrong. But what it's saying here, don't by your actions add more evil to the situation. Does it mean we don't go to the police? No. We go to the police. The courts are there. But many in this room would know that they can only do so much. There's not enough evidence, not enough concern. As much as it depends on you and your actions, do not repay. Behind us taking revenge is not only are we the victim, but when we take revenge, what we're doing is labeling ourselves as the judge. Saying, I know what was done, and I have the right to issue the punishment. But it always goes bad. The promise of revenge, it is so high, but it never satisfies, and it never works. The promise here is verse 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now you might be thinking, well, I'm into God's love, but the idea of God, of wrath, nope. But let me just say this. If the God of love was not a God of wrath, then you do not want to worship that God. Because a God who's meh, indifferent, apathetic, to the evil that is done to you or done in this world is a, is a rubbish kind of God. 
the God of love is a God of love so much that he's God of wrath. He hates all that is evil. You may be thinking, yeah, but I don't want to be that. If I believe in a God of wrath, I'll become more judgmental, rude. No, no, no. You'll become more loving and more peaceful. And I'll tell you why. Because when you do not take revenge, what you are doing, you're not downplaying that you hurt, but you're saying, I'm not the judge, but I'm giving it to a higher court to make the verdict. I'm not going to enact justice, but I'm going to give it to the God of justice. That my anger towards this wrong, it is reckless and rash, but God's anger to this, it is controlled and it is true. That if you know God is angry at what has been done to you, and he will bring about justice, they will not get away with it, then you can lower your fist and you can quiet your tongue. Saying justice will come, but it will not be by me. But then things get a bit more confronting. Because verse 20 says, when it comes to those who have hurt you, if your enemy, what does it say? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become over, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, let me just clarify. When it comes to giving your enemies food, it's not like food with bad motives. Like, I made you some brownies. It's got laxatives in it. You know, it's sort of it's food with good motives, right? And this is practical, generous love in action, right? And it is pushing love to the limits, right? That you would practically meet someone's need who has profoundly hurt you, who is your enemy. Now, what's with the coals? It's not literal, right? That just undermines everything. Bless them, love them, and get the barbie going. Pour the coals on, right? It's not literal heaping coals onto someone's head. What commentators say is it's the person who's harassing you, is harming you. When you do good to them, it is bringing a shame, a guilt, an embarrassment into their life. And it may lead them to convict and change. As one commentator said, by showing unexpected and unmerited kindness to those who wish them ill, Christians may well become the means used by the Holy Spirit to attract others to the faith. That people are watching and they're noticing. What does this look like? Unless you've been living under a rock or you're new, you would know that this year is the year of loving our neighbor at church. And that's all good and said. If you've, you know, for a lot of us, it's an awkward, like, I don't actually know their name, but live with them. 10 years. That's as hard as it gets. But for some of us, you have the neighbor from hell. And what does loving your neighbor look like when you live next door to the neighbor from hell? There's a family in our church who bought a unit. They're excited. Their first place. They moved in as a small family. Very exciting. But little did they know the next door was that neighbor from hell. This is what they've said. This is their experience. We have neighbours who have harassed and been abusive to just about every tenant and owner in our apartment block, including us. We have been verbally abused walking in and out, walking down the street, had banging and screaming at the front door and abusive phone calls and emails. There's also been vandalism to cars and property. Some occupants of the building have their cameras on every time they walk in and out of their unit to record anything that takes place. It is unpleasant not to feel safe in your own home. 
God is teaching us to love our neighbors. This is very hard. Our hearts don't want to. We want revenge. We want to point out all the ways they've wronged us. But this is not what God has called us to do. Rather, we try and pray regularly for them, that they would become Christians. We pray for justice, and let's be honest, that they would move out. We gave them a Christmas gift, and it was angrily returned to us. We try and smile and say hi in the foyer, and it seems to really confuse them. In their minds, we're enemies, and enemies don't smile and say hi. But they know we're Christians, and so we're hoping that somehow God might be at work through this. Why? Why would they do that? Why would you do that? Why would you do the things listed here? When love is defined like this, it is so easy to crawl back to our own culture's definition and just reserve it for an experience or romance. Why love like this? Because the one who ultimately wrote this list also lived it. The one who defined it did it. The author behind this masterpiece is the God of love himself. And if he's the God of love, he and he alone has the right to define this is love. And he does. In 1 John 4 where it says, This is love, not that we loved God, Love starts with the fact that we do not deserve it. We don't deserve it. And as you look at a list like this, it is so easy to see the ways in which we fall far short of it. That we have failed to love, that we've hit back, we've been snobs, we've clung to evil rather than good, we haven't sympathized, we've been greedy, selfish, and perhaps we are more the neighbor from hell to God than we realize. Not that we love God, it starts there. But, 1 John continues, he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, in our most unlovable state, Jesus not only offered us food and drink, but his life, his very life. And there on that cross, he atoned for your sins. In other words, he took all the wrong that you had done, all the ways you have failed onto himself, so much so leaving you innocent perfect. And there on that cross, the God of love became the most unlovable thing ever, so that you would know a love that does not fade, whimper, or go. I heard an, was watching an interview with Pamela Clark a while back. And Pamela Clark is the editor of the Women's Weekly Birthday Cake, and it was an anniversary of it. She said, as she was being interviewed, this line, which gobsmacked me. Making a child a birthday cake is the greatest expression of love. I rewind. Making a child a birthday cake is the greatest expression of love. Really? I mean, that's not a very high bar for the greatest expression of love. Some of you are thinking, well, I've done that three times this month already. Others of you can't bake. You're missing out, right? The greatest expression of love? It just proves to me, again, our culture is in a crisis of what love is, if that's the benchmark. The greatest expression of love is by God, and he's given you more than a birthday cake. 
He's given you his very life. That when you were the most unlovable, when you broke his heart, he said, I'm going to die for you and welcome you into my family forever. Which means when it comes to those who you rub shoulders with, those who you find odd, different, hard to love, or those who profoundly hurt you, your enemy, what you are doing is in that moment, you're looking at the hurt they've caused you, you're in God's shoes and getting a taste of the hurt that you've caused God. Not that we love God. Love never comes from a place of deserving it. But in that shoes of God, you have the opportunity, do I take on the Jesus role that he loved me to show them a love that you've experienced, to introduce them to a love that is not in crisis, but is extravagant, that is grace-dripping, that is completely undeserved, that is out of this world. This seemingly random collection of sayings, bit by bit, form a masterpiece of love. From the God who is love, who not only says it, defines it, but lives it out completely. And he lives it out for you, to you. We love because he first loved us. I'm going to give you a moment now to read over those sayings, one after the other. And I want you to pick one and say, this week, this fortnight, I want to not only hear what love is, but actually do it. So whether you've got a pen, you might want to write it down on your phone, pick one, write it out, I want to do this, and then not just a who, who to. We want to turn this love, not just saying, but actually to be sincere. So I'm going to give you a minute to do that as the band comes up. We pray for what you're writing. Gracious Lord, we ask that we would be men and women who not only hear, but that we would do. That this call to love is so much bigger than we often think. And it is impossible to do, Lord, but you did the impossible, that you not only define what love is, but you lived it out and you lived it for us, that we would experience the love of God. We ask, Lord, that in the small and the big, in those we find hard to love, or those who profoundly hurt us, Lord, may we love the way you have loved us. We ask, Lord, that I ask for the things that we've written down, that we would have a love that is sincere, that is noticed, that is seen by believer and unbeliever, Lord. That it would be men and women marked by a love, a love that is out of this world, and love that is shown by you, Lord Jesus. This we pray in your name. Amen.